This is your host Chukudi, and you're listening to the Other Experts podcast. This episode, we have researcher and plant biologist Mason Mustafar, who oversees the professional and academic development of postgraduate students in a doctoral training partnership between Crops for the Future and the University of Nottingham, Malaysia campus. I'm Mesu and Mustafa from uh, Sudan and been here in Malaysia for 10 years now. Um, I'm a, well, my friends call me a plant doctor. So I'm a researcher. I've been working on plant biology. Um, That's the start of my career. That's what brought me here. I always tell people I'm a desert girl. So I love (laughs) the luscious green that you see around in Malaysia and particularly interested in uh, farming. So agriculture and looking at sustainable agriculture and that's what's been keeping me here for the past decade um right now we actually um in a park so um those if you're listening to this you can't see this but we are surrounded by a lot of the luscious greens you just mentioned uh but why did you choose this the career path that you're on right now um it's a tricky question i um, I think it's a lot of different circumstances yeah. that I ended up in this path. I, uh, when I was finishing high school, like I always knew I wanted to be a scientist, but I wasn't sure exactly what path was yeah. it. Astronomy, archaeology, <laughs> like I wanted, I loved science. And when I was finishing high school, um, I took a bit of a gap, not a gap year, but a bit of a gap period to try to figure out. And at that point in Sudan, there was the issue of Darfur. So I joined the World Food Program, okay. uh, working as a translator to support with, uh, basically they needed someone with bilingual skills who could translate documents from English to Arabic, Arabic to English. And at that point I became really interested in food security and the importance of making sure that people have access to available, affordable, safe food. And that kind of started steering me towards this direction of putting the research interest into looking at how to make safer and more accessible foods for everyone mm-hmm. um, and then basically well choices slash opportunities just kept on guiding me further towards this field food, food security at least we all know it's it's something we know is important but um, why is that maybe you can highlight why it's important to us right now um, in society um, so it's uh, the concept of making sure that everyone has access to um, available, affordable, and acceptable food. And I I always just think that it's such a, I don't know, hypocrisy that at this day and age where we have such incredible technology to support, well, from travel to communication, um, but you still find people who don't have that access to these foods. And the other thing is that it goes both ways you find people in more affluent communities who have access to all types of food, but they end up either taking too much of it or taking the wrong type. So you end up with uh, excessive obesity, and that could also be coupled with the deficiencies in basic nutrients that people need. So that is on the one side. And then on the other side, you find people who don't have that basic access, who can go on a meal a day or even less. And especially when it's children who 
are living with those circumstances, it affects them as they grow up because not having access to the basic nutrients that you need can really stunt growth, affect the mental capacities as they grow up. So it's a lot of different dimensions that come down to just being able to have that food available. And uh, a lot of us take it for granted. Yeah. But uh, so it's something just to make sure that we do have the technologies, we do have the resources. Sometimes it's a question of how these resources are managed and distributed. Other times, uh, maybe a question of, well, a bigger issue such as climate change, political struggle. So it's a very complex aspect that we talk about, but it just comes down to the fact that it's everyone's right to just have that access to their food needs. All right. So, what what do you? What's a typical day for you like? What what do you do? Um, it's hard for me to describe a typical day because I don't have a typical <laughs> <All> day. <laughs> um, that's what I like about what I do right. is that I get bored with routine. So I like the fact that every time, every week, every day, there would be something different. Um, but especially now, I work for, well, I work for two organizations a research center called Crops for the Future and the University of Nottingham. Okay. So my role is between both of them. Um, so it's easier to explain Crops for the Future. What we do is we, um, again, people say that I'm waging war on rice. <laughs> but um, what we look at from my office is the fact that rice, wheat, and maize, they, na- they now make up about 70% of what people eat on a day-to-day basis. And uh, not only is that not healthy because you end up having heavy carbs and lacking the other nutrients, but it's also not good for the environment because you change a lot of uh, lands so that the, you can just grow these three crops. Whereas to have a healthy environment, in the same way as for you to be healthy, you need to eat as many different uh, plants or meat base or whatever it is as possible the um, environment as well needs to have as many different types of plants growing in it so that it can be healthy and it can keep on recycling itself and uh, just basically being sustainable so what we try to look at from crops of the future is how to introduce these other crops either into farming systems or into people's diets so that you could have a healthy balance for the environment and for yourself as well Okay. Um, the University of Nottingham, you mentioned that. Um, yes, yes. So Nottingham is a big supporter of uh, Crops of the Future. Okay. Um, and uh, so my role is between both. So what I do is I manage a, it's a doctoral training partnership okay. between both of them. I realize I did not answer your question. <laughs> I described my <laughs> office. <and then. laughs> um, so I manage, a, it's a doctoral training partnership where Crops of the Future and University of Nottingham mm-hmm have kind of agreed to support what it's 300 years of uh, research right. done by PG students on these uh, crops that could sustain us for the future. Right. So I manage this arrangement between both organizations, okay. which is why I work for both of them. Um, obviously from the crops for the future side, I try to look at how the research aligns with what CFF for short, um, with what CFF's objectives are, that we are researching different aspects of these various crops. And from Nottingham's side, because Nottingham is the awarding institute, so I try to look at 
how the students, um, especially because they would be doing PhDs or masters, so how they are meeting the academic requirements, they're getting the support they need from their supervisors, and uh, basically covered from the academic aspect of it. All right. So that's why my role kind of shifts a lot between sometimes trying to sort out um, whatever issues might be with the university uh, or supporting in any way, or sometimes it might be organizing uh, programs or courses that can support these students and help them develop their research to meet the goals. So it's, it's interesting for me, I was still saying that. I, it's something that I like to do. And uh, it always, uh, oh, there are always challenges with it. So I'm not going to say it's easy, but that's what keeps me going. Uh, you mentioned 70%. Um, 70% um, cultivation at those crops. Um, is that just in Asia or is that like global numbers? Um, so that would be global numbers. So yeah. if you look specifically at Asia, I don't know the numbers by region, but Asia would obviously be rice way more. Yeah. Um, and especially countries within Asia tend to look at the, what they call the self-sufficiency level. Right. So that's how much of the rice needs for the country that they produce themselves. So something like Thailand would be I think more than 100%. So they produce way more rice than the country needs, which is why they can sell to other countries. Right. Malaysia falls, I think it's somewhere between 50 to 70 on my last check. Um, so they don't grow enough rice to meet their country's needs, so they end up importing. But the fact that it's the rice sufficiency level accounts for how food secure a country is, you can see how that is tipped towards one main crop. Yeah. And uh, in other parts of the world, it would be very different. One thing, um, so obviously I'm from Sudan, and particularly in Africa, you tend to find more diverse crops supporting the people. But as countries try to become more urbanized, they end up replacing their diets with uh, the more Western diets. Uh, you mean McDonald's? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then that's where you start getting higher intake of wheat or yeah. these other crops. But like for me in Sudan, sorghum, millet, these form the main crops that we traditionally eat. Yeah, we talked about this the last time. Um, what people will be replacing um, rice and wheat and all of that with. Mm. Uh, I think one of them was quinoa. Yeah. Uh, but then also I remember we talked about, or I mentioned like quinoa is kind of expensive right now. Um, so how does that work? Um, so one thing we try to make sure is that um, when you're trying to encourage people to eat other f um, other grains, so now we're talking about grains, is you have to be careful of what I call the quinoa incident, where quinoa is now very popular amongst urban consumers to the point that the traditional Peruvian farmers who used to grow it can't eat it anymore because it's too expensive for them. Um, so for quinoa, and as much as you would want these kind of crops to be introduced to people's diets, you want to do it at a rate that does not affect the traditional consumers of it. Um, another thing now we look at is teff, you know, in Ethiopia. So that's kind of coming towards being the new quinoa, but you don't want to end up with a you condition where... Teff. Teff. All right. So that's traditionally consumed in Ethiopia. All right. But you don't want to end up in a condition where it's now too expensive for the people who traditionally ate it or grew it to 
end up uh, not being able to afford eating it anymore. Um, but um, so yeah, so it's trying to find the right balance. So as much as we try to look at how to uh, in, well encourage research on these crops and encourage people to consume them, you have to also look at the value chain and look at who you're affecting along the way to make sure that it's done in a healthy way. Yeah, that's that makes sense. Uh, we've mostly talked about um, your work. Um, uh, how about we go off work? What do you do when you're not working? Um, I love outdoors and I love exploring. So one thing I've liked to do being here is um, Malaysia makes it very accessible to travel around. So I always tell people I've traveled now around all the states in Malaysia except for Sabah. So oh, that okay. will be that, soon. That's yeah, impressive. <laughs> okay. But I also like to travel around uh, nearby countries as well okay. to get a little bit of feel of that. But it's just basically trying to be outdoors as much as possible, enjoying the nature that we have, uh, meeting new people, getting to know different aspects of culture, food. So these are the main areas that I try to do as much as possible of that. I like I'd go to a mall on necessity, <laughs> but I wouldn't be there. Like, um, no. So it's it's more about being outdoors. Okay. Uh, you mentioned culture. Um, how how was it um, for you integrating into the Malaysian culture? Was it was there like a culture shock or anything when you first got here? Um. So I must say it took me gradual steps before I integrate into the Malaysian culture. Because uh, when I first came here, I was a university student. And within university, you have a lot of, well, international friends. It's a very international community. And at first, I was staying within that community and not really exploring, uh, well, the Malaysian culture as much. Okay. Or, well, food or any aspects of it. And slowly in time, so it took me a while before I started getting more comfortable and started... Um, making friends outside of uh, that close community and uh, just starting to experience more of what Malaysia had to offer. Okay, um, what would you say has been your favorite thing about being here? Experience, food, um, everything counts. So I'm trying to narrow that down to yeah, see yeah, it's what it's exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, I'm still trying to think what would be my favorite experience about being here. Um, okay, I must say, like, so um, one of my favorite parts in Malaysia is Sarawak. Okay. Um, I lo absolutely love um, the people there and the food as well. But most importantly, I think, um, the people. It's been such an incredible experience uh, being around there and... Uh, there's especially this uh, one community that I've visited a few times now. It's called Barrio. It's in the Klabet Highlands. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, like, my first time visiting there. It's a very small plane that you take to get there. And I met this couple on the flight. And I was talking to them, and they were explaining to me where they live exactly in that uh, community. And then they told me, you should come visit me. I did not take that seriously. And I remember on my last day... Um, in Barrio before leaving I bumped into that couple at the market 
and they were very upset with me that <laughs> I had not come to visit them, <laughs> which reminded me of home. This is something that um, just took me immediately back to home to that. Um, yeah, on the last day, there would always be my aunties or whoever, friends who would be very upset with me for having not visited them during yeah. my short stay. And it was just so beautiful to be able to experience that. All right. Uh, what's how do you how do you stay grounded uh, being out here and home being so far away? Um, um, well, I visit home at least once a year. All right. And uh, I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but my mom visited me visited me about once a year as well. So she likes coming out here. And uh, so there's that connection. There's always. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, technology's made life so much easier. So on a daily basis, uh, you're talking to family and friends from back home. I don't follow news from back home, but uh, I get that from the family and friends, the communication. Is that on purpose, not following news from is back it home? It is on purpose. All right. Uh, do we have to ask why? Oh, I think we'd better <laughs> avoid that. All right. Um, just, yeah, I don't want to go into that topic, okay. so... <laughs> Um, but yes, absolutely, just being in touch with the people. And whenever I go home, I always come back with food products that I love from home. I'm not a good cook, no. <laughs> but my mom's found incredible ways of making my life easier, like preparing almost like 80% of whatever the food needs to be so that I can just easily finish it off no. here and get a taste of whatever I miss from back home. So. These would be the main things that keep me in contact with home. What are some interesting things you've learned um, while being out here um, in Malaysia? Okay, so this is not directly, um, how to say, like learned. Uh, well, I'd say, but um, when I first came here, I was very squeamish. So insects, geckos, everything scared me. But having lived out here for a while, I... I've come to a point where I'm not even afraid of snakes or, you know, all these creepy crawlies. Uh, how about cockroaches? Also not afraid of them. Okay, that's good to know. And uh, I didn't like, not to say that I would go towards something, so I'd be careful, but I've learned uh, maybe, how to say, to be a bit more in contact with animals or yeah, insects yeah. or like to just uh, learn to understand their space and um, know that they're not directly a threat to me so that's just something i picked up from living here and uh, also in a way food as well so again i'm a desert girl seafood's not on our menu a lot so i've experimented a lot here with the different seafood that you can find and well to say that not everything is my favorite <laughs> but i've tried as much as possible and uh it's just kind of built in this, well, resilience as well as an interest to try out new stuff and uh, just keep on yeah, experimenting and knowing that there are a lot of different things in life, but you just need to open yourself up to experiences. What's your favorite? You've tried different seafood and different food. Which would you say is your favorite so far? Or favorites in case it's more than one? Um, I still stick to my favorite being... Uh, <laughs> beef and dairy which is what do we get back home so that never changes i think it's been cemented since i was a little kid but um stuff like tom yum absolutely love that and uh you don't do any of the ayam gorengs 
I'm not a big fan of chicken. I do eat chicken, but I'm not a big fan of it. Okay. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of it. So and I think, okay, that's one thing that being in Malaysia for so long, it's kind of made me like them even less because... Yeah, everything here is about ayam. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it's ayam more than being adventurous and trying out different seafood. So right. I've taken that aspect of trying out different seafood. Uh, what, what advice would you have for, um, say an expat or someone who wants to um, be a scientist, uh, do the same thing you're doing, um, be a plant doctor? Ah. Um, so I say just follow your passion. It's uh, It may not be clear at times, but just try to always think about what you used to like as a kid, what kept you interested and intrigued in life. And that is where your biggest uh, motivations would be. That's where what that's what you should follow, and uh, if it is to be a scientist, if there are a lot of questions that you want to find answers to, know that whatever path you take, it's not going to be an easy one. There are going to be a lot of ups and downs, and as long as you have good people around you, and you have good intentions, and you know that you're following your heart, you will make it. And uh, I think it's just very important to know that. Uh, Again, as I say, it's not going to be easy. Um, there is this book that I love. Um, it's called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. So people, different people who read it have come up with different messages from it. But one of the messages that I got out from the book was that, um, from the title stuff you can see, um, that being light um, or by basically shedding the weights and concerns that you have in life, while it may appear desirable, it actually ends up with a life that is somewhat unbearable. So the unbearable being of lightness. So you have to make sure that you have you keep those weights or you keep those uh, things that cement you. So if that is family, that is your religion, that is your culture, that is your work. Um, so these things, while they may be challenging at times, but they're what they're your roots they're what keep you connected and give you meaning as you go on so yeah so just make sure you stay connected okay. and you <laughs> that's uh, that's would be my advice okay um anything else you want to say before just to round up anything you want to add anything you, you think people should know um, about you about living as an expat in malaysia um i just uh, think that one thing you should do is just uh, be open to experiences, be open to meeting new people. And uh, uh, yeah, okay, might sound creepy at times, but just smile <laughs> as much as possible. Smile at strangers, smile at whoever, because something that I realized uh, is that you never know what, you know, one simple smile can affect someone, whatever they're going to with their day, with their life. And uh, in the same way that life goes around, so that same person might help you at some point in some day. So I just always think it's very important to just, uh, no matter how difficult it gets, stay positive, keep that smile on your face. It's good for you, it's good for others. And try to enjoy wherever you are. Try to enjoy and live your life to the fullest. Okay, that's that was really beautiful. Um, that's Mason. Mason. Yeah. I got that right you got it right now um 
thank you for coming on the Other Expats podcast. Um, thank you for having me. I'm really um, glad to have been here. <laughs> and that's the end of this episode of the Other Expats podcast. Um, thanks for listening. The Other Expats podcast is produced by Blast Studios. The sound design is by Big Main Sound Machine. And the intro was created by The Small Room Production. You can and should subscribe to the Other Expats podcast on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud and sign up for our monthly newsletters on the otherexperts.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can always email us at any time on inquiry at otherexperts.com.